Our next speaker is Edner Terrio, and he's a writer, musician, and graphic designer with deep Montana roots. His great-great-grandparents homesteaded along the Douglas Creek in the, I'm sorry, in the Flint Creek Valley in the late 1800s, and his grandfather mined for gold in Garnet. As a Humanities Montana, Montana Conversation speaker, he has shared his talk, Finding Montana, with hundreds of people across the state. He published Myths and Legends in Yellowstone in 2018. His writing can be seen in Missoula Valley Lifestyle and Distinctly Montana, along with Mountain Outlaw and other regional publications. He lives in Missoula with his wife, Shannon. Please welcome Edna. Thank you. So I gotta plug this guy in. Oh, oh. I'm a Mac guy. Sorry. That's okay. This over here. We can. Yeah, the bottom one. That's right, the bottom one. Did you get a load of that? I think you did, didn't you? I think so. Oh. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes. The middle one, pause? Um, no, the middle one is a mouse thing. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. Obviously, I'm not a big PowerPoint guy. Um, was anybody at the uh, conference last year in Butte? Excellent. You might have heard this. There was a big discussion uh, concerning what makes a history buff versus a historian. I have to, I can't tell you how the, the discussion came out. I, I went off to get a beer or something. But uh, <laughs> I have class my, classified myself as an accidental historian. I started out writing as a humorist. And uh, after my first book came out in 2009, I discovered that when you get to write about things like a 21-foot-tall cement penguin in Cutbank, Montana, you have to do a little historical research in the process. So as I've gone on, I've gotten more and more into uh, researching the Montana area and the Northwest in general. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right to this. Uh, first of all, I've got to say uh, it's great to be back in Red Lodge. My wife and I had a great Mexican dinner last night at Las Palmitas. So I'm going to apologize in advance to the first two rows here. Okay, so the summer of 1870, the, the Washburn Expedition. Um, the first half of the 1800s, uh, say between the Lewis and Clark Expedition and the Civil War, uh, there were all kinds of mountain men, explorers, prospectors, uh, kind of crawling around the uh, Yellowstone Plateau, the upper Yellowstone River, sending back these incredible reports of these amazing sights they've seen, spouts of steam spurting from the earth and bubbling pools of, of boiling water. And so finally, after the Civil War, the, uh, uh, the businessmen and the politicians and the, the financiers got serious about sending some expeditions out there full of experts so they could uh, map, paint, survey, measure, generally gather data on the mysterious plateau so they could figure out how they were going to divvy it up and exploit the natural resources. This, is, this was kind of just how it worked back then. So uh, the Washburn expedition included such intrepid characters as Nathaniel P. Langford, Lieutenant Gustavus Doan, 
Samuel Hauser and Warren Gillette. It also included a 54-year-old nearsighted tax assessor from Helena named Truman C. Everts. Truman C. Everts was not your John Coulter. He was not your Jim Bridger. He had zero military experience, no wilderness experience, but he'd been sacked from his job as the, the territory assessor, and his friend, uh, I think it was uh, Langford, invited him to join the expedition because uh, Truman C. Everts was, was heading back east very soon. He wanted to have one cool outdoor adventure before he left. Even though uh, it was probably unlikely they would need any tax collecting done on this expedition, they allowed him to join them. But what he got, what he came back with was the best what I did on my summer vacation essay ever. This is Truman C. Everett. He's nearsighted. So on August 22, 1870, 40 horses, 19 men, and a dog named Booby left Bozeman. They went south up the Yellowstone River, which, yeah, upstream down the Paradise Canyon. I'm going to have to uh, speed this up a little bit so we can get to Truman Everts. So, say they came in through the north through uh, Mammoth. This is Mount Everts as you come in through Mammoth. It was named for uh, Truman Everts. They figured that, well, guess what? That's not where he was found. So they come in through, oops, oh no. They come in through Mammoth. They go East toward, towards Tower Falls, they go down south through uh, Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. They stay for a couple days, measure the falls, gather data in the Grand Canyon. They go south to kind of the same route that Miller took a few years earlier. They go down south around the east end, the east side, I'm sorry, of Yellowstone Lake. And on about September 7th, they reach the south end of the southeast arm of the lake. This takes about two weeks. So two days later, they reach this area, which they find uh, it's called Two Ocean Plateau, where they identify the headwaters of the Snake River and the headwaters of the Yellowstone River. This is September 9th. Unfortunately, as one guy says, hey, has anybody seen Truman C. Everett's? No. He's been missing for two days. <laughs> So Truman C. Everts, uh, it's not the first time he got separated from the party. Uh, th th as these guys would work their way through, typically the more dense forests, they would sometimes become separated from the, the main pack. And eventually they would come back together and find the trail and rejoin. This happened several times on the trip. Uh, this time, Everts went completely the wrong direction. He was nearsighted. Uh, it, the photo showed him with glasses. His account of his journey did not mention wearing corrective lenses, so we don't know what happened there, but uh, the, the first day he was out there, it started to get dark. He was south of the park, south of the lake, down around this area. He had, they, the team had crossed Grouse Creek here and moved over. He was down around here in some of the densest uh, pi uh, lodge pine in Yellowstone, which is about 80% lodgepole pines. Hard to even get through, so he spent the night, slept there with his horse, used his saddle for a pillow, had the horse blanket, and figured he'll get up in the morning, rejoin his team right away, they'll have breakfast, have a couple laughs, he's got a cool story to take back to Helena. So the next morning he woke up and started to pick his way 
got on his horse, picked his way through the woods, and it was so dense that they couldn't find a pass through. All this downfall, downfall and uh, it's like going through pickup sticks, yeah. underbrush. He had to get off the horse and try to pick his, a path through there for his horse to get out. Well, the horse found his own path and ran out the other way. <laughs> Attached to the saddle were all his tools, his guns, his fishing tackle, his food, bedroll. All he had left was a knife and an opera glass. And he managed to lose, lose the knife by that night. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't mean to make fun of the guy. This is really an awful experience, but he just seemed so hapless. And it's kind of like he, why was he even there in the first place? <coughs> So after his horse ran off, he uh, found a spot between a couple of trees to bed down for his uh, second night lost in the, the Yellowstone wilderness. And as he writes, I'm going I'm to interject here, this is the only resource there is really about his account. It's his first hand narrative that was published in Scribner's Monthly a year after this. And in 1871, when it was published, the writing is so flowery and so purple prose, it's kind of the Gilded Age style that it's a little hard to pick through all the, the flowery musings and find what really happened. So it takes a lot of scrutinizing. It's like studying the Dan's Bruder film to see what happened. But, and I want to thank Lee Whittlesey in, in, Whittlesey in particular for putting this out in 1995 with heavy, heavy footnotes that he just went through this whole thing and looked at every possibility of what could have happened. So using those footnotes, footnote mining, as we learned yesterday, I, I went off from there and found a little bit of context to put around it. So this is really my interpretation of his narrative, which he wrote a year later. And there are some discrepancies, as you'll see, but this was his second night. He spent alone. He had no food. He had no gear. Uh, he, he, it was pitch dark. He heard growling and and snarling and critters moving through the woods and uh, he, he, the howling of wolves and he figured it was mountain lions and heard bears and he was probably right on every account. Okay, he calls this his night of terror. He got no sleep. He got up the next day and posted notices around the area in case his team came through looking for him. Uh, there is no mention in his book of where he came up with the pen and paper. Uh, maybe he found some natural thumbtacks. I don't know how he really accomplished any of this. So the next day, he's starving. He sees some, uh, some green plants in this area, and they are elk thistles. And if without finding these thistles, he probably wouldn't have made it. He yanked one up, cleaned it off, tasted the root, and thought, well, I can, you know, this is not bad. It's not filet mignon, but it'll keep me alive. So these grow all over. You might have some in your backyard. Uh, they became such a crucial part of his, his survival, it was renamed the, uh, the Everts Thistle. So he found a spot. He started heading west. This is the other thing he did wrong. Washburn said, here's the plan, boys. 40 guys, we're, or 19 guys, we're going out. Anybody gets lost, head to Yellowstone Lake. Go up and down the shore. We will look for you up and down the shore. We'll eventually find you. It might take weeks, but that's the plan. Well, Everest didn't like this plan, so he got lost, and he headed west, away from Yellowstone Lake. What he found was Heart Lake, which is, uh, let's see if I can get back to the map. 
Heart Lake is uh, right here. So he went here this way. The, the party went kind of north, and they were looking for him up and down the shore. Meanwhile, he's going over here, and he wound up out on this peninsula. Well, I had a lot of coffee today. <laughs> Sorry. So he says, oh, I found, I found, you know, this, I'm going to lake, name this lake after my daughter since I am surely the first uh, man to ever lay eyes on it. It's just, this is the, the hubris and arrogance of the white explorers in that, <laughs> that day. As they spent half their time running around Yellowstone naming stuff after themselves. <laughs> so he went there and made a camp the first night before he made his way down to the lake. And uh, he was so exhausted, he fell against the tree and dropped to sleep into a dead sleep. He was woken up, awakened in the middle of the night by this shriek. He, he woke up and sat up, and it was uh, like a woman's scream, and he realized that it was a mountain lion coming through the, the woods toward him. He could hear it growling, so he climbed up a nearby lodgepole like a spider monkey. He was just up this thing, and so it was pitch dark, and he hears the mountain lion growling and circling the tree around the base, waiting for him to come down, so he starts hollering at the mountain lion, breaking off branches and throwing them down to try and scare them off. This goes on for a couple of hours. Finally, Jen, if it is you. Oh, sorry. Okay. Finally, the mountain lion gets bored, takes off, goes to look for other prey. He comes down the tree. He is so wiped out. He doesn't care if the mountain lion's coming back. He just passes out. So in the morning, he gets up. Let's see, the, the order of the way things happen is, is, this is my fifth version of this outline. So, okay, okay, he found a spot near Heart Lake where he made a camp, and it was a geothermal area, so there were hot pools and geysers, and he found a warm spot on the ground where the snowstorm was coming in, the first big snowstorm of the season. This was 1st of October, right around, right around now. So... Uh, He's like, i got to make shelter before the snow comes in. I'm going to get some pine boughs, make a shelter on this warm crust. And so he wound up staying there for 12 days. I don't want to burn up too much time here, but I'll, I'll just cover the, the fun points. So during this time, uh, he, uh, he was living on elk thistle. He would go out during the snowstorm, pick a few of them, clean them off, cook the roots in a hot pool, go back into his shelter and eat these things. And this snowstorm goes on for a few days, and after, uh, I think there was a lull in the storm after about the second or third day, a little snowbird, as he calls it, comes kind of hopping by the entrance to his shelter, and it's pretty wet, so it can't fly. He reaches out and grabs it, and he captures the snowbird, and he plucks it and eats it raw. And it's the first, first meat he's had in a long time. Now, there's, there's no account of what kind of bird it was. Oh. But this is a mountain chickadee that's known to live in the area, just for your enjoyment. <laughs> After a few days, the sun comes out. He, it occurs to him he has a pair of opera glasses in his vest pocket. Perhaps he can concentrate the sun and make a fire the way we burned ants when we were little, you know, little guys. So he does this. He manages to get a fire started. And uh, this is an example of his writing. When he, when he gets a fire started after hours of trying, he says, I felt if the whole world were offered me for it, I would cast it all aside before parting with that little spark. <laughs> so this, yeah, this is what I'm dealing with. 
So he manages to start fire. He's starting to have some fires to keep himself warm. So uh, during this time, he's, he's in his little shelter, and he breaks through the crust and falls into scalding water, oh. burns the crap out of his hip. So he has to sleep sitting up for the rest of the time. Soon after he figures out how to make fire, he builds a fire, and he, uh, he falls asleep and pitches forward into it, burns his hand, and just is, is not having a good time of it. So after almost two weeks in the shelter, he feels good enough, the weather is good enough, he's going to strike out. This time, he wises up and starts carrying a firebrand with him to start a fire at his next destination. He retraces his steps back to Yellowstone Lake, trying to find the trail of the expedition. He finds their old campsite. They're gone. Uh, there's no note. There's no food. There's no nothing. He does find a fork in an empty yeast tin. Uh, let's see. Yeah, he, he, after he leaves there, he camps. He builds a fire, makes a camp, falls into a deep sleep, and he's on a bed of pine boughs. And uh, he, wakes, he wakes up from the deep sleep because he hears crackling of wood. And he looks down, and his, his bed is on fire. And he looks, the, the logs around him are on fire. And he jumps up, and he has started a forest fire. So he backs off after marveling at the terrible beauty of the entire hillside that is now ablaze. And that's, I think it's after this, actually, he finds their campsite. It's a little confusing, but... Meanwhile, a three-man search party just missed him at Heart Lake. They found his pitiful little camp there, and it's, boy, it was close. So he's starving. The guy is, it's like, he, he's sleep-deprived. He's starting to lose his mind. He decides what, what he's going to do is go west, continue west toward the Madison Range, and he'll find a, a gap in the range and make his way to Virginia City. Like, he's starting to think he is Jim Bridger. <laughs> so he heads west. Meanwhile, everybody's looking for him down south. Finally, they run out of time. They, the, the Washburn expedition has to head home. They're running low on provisions. They leave a couple guys behind to look for a couple more days, but they have already headed up through the, uh, the Geyser Valley, Geyser Basins, and I believe out through the Madison west from there. So, uh, meanwhile, Everts is still bumbling around somewhere east of uh, the lake looking for his way to Virginia City. He's starting to hallucinate. Uh, his, his, he's, his body is consuming itself. His limbs, he pictures his arms and legs as separate entities, and he starts arguing with them. They don't want to go on. He says, look, I'm in charge. We are going on. Uh, after, after two weeks of nothing but thistle root, his digestive system shuts down. Uh, his stomach leaps out and says, look, you can go on, I'm not going. He, he gets into an argument with his stomach. He's still bumbling around. Then his hallucinations take the form of someone he calls the doctor or the counselor. The doctor says, you must turn back and go east, back to Yellowstone Lake. So he decides to change direction, go back to Yellowstone Lake. This was actually fortuitous because then he was able to pick up uh, the trail around kind of the northwest corner of the lake. But, uh, ten, ten, okay, we're going to get right to it. Okay, during this time, he find, he goes into, he, he, yeah, he goes into the woods. He's in the woods. He finds a hollowed out log to spend the night, and uh, he can see tracks of a bear around this hollow log, oh, and it's clearly a bear's den. 
He does care. He lights a ring of fire around the... the no. But yeah, and he, he crawls in there, and uh, he, he, he wakes up to... Well, he started a forest fire. <laughs> so he, he managed to escape that. I think this one singed most of his hair off. So he finds a gull's wing somewhere along the way and mashes it up and puts it into his yeast tin with uh, some water and boils it up to make what he calls a delicious stew. No, a delicious broth. Uh, somehow it didn't catch on. You can't find that here in, in the Red Lodge. The days began to blur one into the next. Uh, he finds some minnows in a stream that he manages to catch. He eats these minnows, immediately pukes them up. He surmises that the stream must be poisoned. That's the only explanation. Uh, doesn't explain how the minnows are alive, but that's, maybe it's in a footnote. So his inner thoughts veered from, quote, morbid indifference to words of encouragement and cheer. He kept talking himself and to keep going on. So eventually he makes his way up to, uh, the, let's see, he's, uh, this is near Crescent, Crescent Hill, up kind of the northern plateau, not far from the Yellowstone River. This is where he is found by Jack Baronet and uh, George Houston, uh, contemporaries from the same, say, that same summer of 1870. Uh, Baronet is the guy that built the, built the first bridge across the Yellowstone River and built a shack there so he could collect a toll for people to cross it. So he's another famous Yellowstone character. They have been uh, sent by a judge in Helena to go find Truman Everett's remains. There's no way anybody can survive 37 days in the wilderness, especially this overweight, nearsighted, middle-aged greenhorn. So just go bring back what's left. So they see him, his skeletal being, crawling across the hill. According to Everett's, he says, the two approached him and said, Are you Mr. Everett's? He said, yes, all that is left of him. He asked who sent, the, who sent the pair, and when they told him, he said, God bless him, and you, and them, I am saved. And then he claps into their arms. <laughs> According to Baronet, not so much. He did say, are you Mr. Everts? And Mr. Everts said something like, hydrate, and he <laughs> collapsed. They managed to save him, eventually got him to Bu I'm sorry, to Billings on an this wagon. He recuperated him for several months, got back to his health, was able to write this, this incredible account of his journey that appeared in the magazine. The very next year, 1872, uh, Yellowstone becomes a national park. They, they decide, we need a superintendent. The first one should be Truman Everts, after all. <laughs> What the hell? We already named a mountain after him and a thistle. That's, you know. So they offered him the job. He says, awesome. What does it pay? They said, oh, there's no pay. There's no staff. There's no budget. He's Nick's. So he eventually moved on to Maryland where he worked for the post office. And he died in 19, 1901 of pneumonia. After that, he moved into legend. He's the only person ever to survive 37 days in the Yellowstone wilderness and live to tell about it. Oh. <laughs>